0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: This is, of course, the, the Talking City podcast from the Manchester Evening News. You will be able to download this as a podcast and please subscribe, give us five stars, etc. And we're here at Urbis, which is the National Football Museum, doing it live in front of a live audience tonight. Go on, prove that you're live. Yeah, a live audience. <laughs> And there will be microphones in the audience. I don't mean they're hidden strategically or anything, but if you put your hand up as we go along, you'll be able to ask questions. There is also a hashtag, which is on the strap going round, which is a stop for a second, which is hashtag Talking City, I think it says. It's going round now. Tweet your questions for... We'll get there eventually. Uh, for the panel using... Here we go. Hashtag Talking City Live, right? So you've got it. So if you want to do that, then we can collect them or there will be microphone. So let's, uh, first of all, introduce our esteemed panel tonight. Appropriate songs, fine, okay? So let's start with the king of all Geordies, Dennis Stewart. (laughs) Dennis Stewart, king of all Geordies. Whatever you want, Dennis. The next one of our esteemed guests is uh, has got his own song as well. It is the one and only Mr. Sean Gulder. When I, yeah, when I was in the press box the other night uh, for the Hoffenheim game, there was a, a fan came up and, and talked to a couple of journalists who were sat next to me, and they said, uh, "You're scribes, aren't you?" And uh, and the, the journalist went, "I've never been described as a scribe before." Well, these two who are about to come on now. Are scribes, right? They are journalists. They are the two main Manchester City men on the Manchester Evening News. They are the chief city reporter, uh, Mr. Stuart Brennan, and his sidekick. Shall we call him that? Yeah, why not? Simon Bajkowski! I'll stay at this end, Dennis. Since I'm I'm hosting the event tonight, I'll stay on my feet, but you can sit there and and enjoy the show. Now, there are questions that I'm sure you've got, and feel free to put your hand in the air, and we'll take the questions at any time, or do that hashtag. But I'll kick off by asking a few questions. Now, obviously, City uh, lost at Chelsea last week, um, which is a a rarity, isn't it, for the Blues? So how do the panel... And we can walk... uh, Go along from one end to the other, so we'll start with Sean. How did you feel about the defeat at, at Chelsea, and what, what does it tell us, if anything, about the title race, about City, about anything you want?
0: Well, it shows that. Mike Jack. I work at every Mike Jack. Yeah. yeah? Well, I think it shows that all the other teams have gotten that much closer and you can be for, studying for the other day. City yeah. and understanding the City. Studying City. <laughs> studying City. Hey! Yeah, I think all the other teams have been, you know, observing, looking at City, studying City, uh, to seeing how they can can get closer. Uh, teams have gotten closer, and and for me, when I've when I've looked at Chelsea, I thought, well, they're not they're not too far off, as in the proven they've made, um, and I and I feel that, you know. I was surprised, but then I wasn't surprised because when I look at Chelsea and playing other teams, I thought they're actually a lot closer than than, than we think. Um, so uh, I, I was surprised, and then I also wasn't surprised. If, if that's an answer, um, but you know we're 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 still a team that's improving under Pep, and and players are still understanding what, what he's about. So yeah, Chelsea Chelsea is, is getting closer. Dennis. The transfer.
2: That was the short version. No, I just think the team's evolving. And I think as Sean quite rightly says, you know, because we've got so many coach, good coaches in the, in the league, they're analysing all the time. And they've got all the stats and the data. So therefore, they can set out systems to compete against us. You know, so what, we, what Pep has to do, and he has been doing over the last four... 10, 15 years of his career. He's been evolving these teams, and I'm a great uh, um, uh, sports business uh, book reader. And I've read both of Pep's, Pep Revolution, Pep Evolution, when he went from Barca to Bayern, Bayern to Man City. And he's evolved, his, his, his approach to, to coaching and uh, evolved from setting up these teams and developing individual players. And to me, you know, the way he is, and because he's such an intense person, he will evolve to the next level as well. So I don't think we've got any problems.
1: I'm not going to ask these two about the game specifically in terms of the football I'm going to go on to the other big talking point which came from that game which was the racism or the alleged racism that happens against uh, Raheem Sterling and obviously you two are journalists and uh, there were and have been since that game um, debates about whether journalism whether it be written whether it be on TV whether it be on radio, whatever form it takes social media has in some way contributed either consciously or unconsciously so the way that Raheem Sterling himself has been treated which is I think a perception a lot of city fans have had and different ways that things that he does and have done to him have been reported and other players of different colored skin would have um, so I just wondered as journalists yourself what you've made of the, the various different elements to this story that have evolved over the last week or so I think
3: working. <laughs> I think what Raheem's done is by coming out with a statement he did this week he's focused minds he's made everybody think about it you know um, people who have never perceived themselves as saying anything racist have had to have a second think about what they're writing what they're saying the language they're using um, obviously what went on at Chelsea is completely unacceptable Um and Raheem was absolutely right when he said that uh, that atmosphere has has come about because some sections of the media I mean, I'm not, not saying we're completely guilt spot but i don't i don't think we've contributed to this and i've written pieces about this that the way raheem has been treated uh in some parts of the media has been absolutely appalling you know and it's always written it's, it's not sports journalists let's get this straight these are news journalists who do these things because um, sports journalists by and you know a lot of them have met Raheem and they know that that, that picture that's that's been painted of him is, is sort of brash and cocky and flash and somebody who goes out and flashes his money around is completely wrong. Jamie Carragher made the point the other night, you know, from knowing him at Liverpool saying that was a wrong perception. Um, I, I, I've met him plenty of times and he's a really likeable lad. He's fat, in fact, he's the only footballer I have ever interviewed who thanked me for doing an interview and he, he does it every time. Whenever you speak to him, at the end he'll say thank you you think, you know, what are you thanking me for? You know, it's, it should be the other way around. Um, so that, that perce- and you think, well, where does that perception come from? And that perception has come from things that people have written about him. The people who've written those things are people who know nothing about the kid. And it, it, it you know, it annoys me, it annoys me that, that, that people are sort of perverting our profession, really. And I, I think the people who try and do a good job, including sports writers who work for the same same organisations who are writing these things, they're, ang- believe me, they're angry. Than most people, uh, because it, you know it affects them. It affects the way they're trying to do the job. So yeah, I mean, I think Raheem has, has done. It's a brave thing for him to do to stand up and say that. But hopefully, it'll be a watershed moment, and we can start moving forward and you know start making progress in, in, in something that's an absolute scourge in our society, not just in football.
1: Simon, do you want to? You want to add
4: anything to that, Simon? I'm not sure I can follow that, but um, but yeah, I mean Raheem's statement was absolutely brilliant, and I think it. Hopefully, I will sort of look at things when I'm writing things. I'd like to think I've not written anything that's sort of has a negative slant towards it. But I don't think anyone in this room could say that Raheem's had a fair press, really, because some of the stories that have been written about him have have just been completely off the mark and and terrible and I think hopefully what comes from this is that everyone has a little think and everyone just yeah thinks about the issue and just before they before they commit and go out and do a hatchet job on on Sterling or or anyone because I thought it was quite good that Sterling's the example he used with Phil and Tosin, you know, nothing to do with him. Whereas there's a long thread of of stories with Raheem, um, but you would just hope that everyone going forward um, stops and thinks. I've always thought, kind of, as good as as good a player as Yaya Toure was when everyone was describing him as like a beast, and yeah, he he did those long busts in runs that were brilliant, but he also his touch was so good and his passing was so good, and that sort of didn't get picked up on as much. And we need to have those kind of conversations in in football. And if Raheem can help us to have them, then he's kind of even more of a brilliant human than we all think he is.
1: And I know. I, the only thing I'd add to that um, is that obviously I, I grew up uh, not, not right at the start of my time but uh, I saw Alex Williams playing in goal and, uh, and I would go to home and away games and I suppose plenty of them in the room here tonight who've done the same and seen Alex come out to a lot of bananas being chucked on behind the goal and that was just disgusting even in its era it was terrible it was a different era but to think that that ever happened and still happens at football, it makes me wonder, as much as we all want to be optimistic, if it can ever, ever truly uh, be removed. Because racism isn't just black-white, it's not. Ju- it's it's about religion, it's about, um, you know, homophobia. I mean, there's not been a single um, current footballer who's come out uh, because of the fear of what's going to happen if and when that happens. I hope that happens soon, because uh, this type of racism or... Or, or ignorance, if you like. I think that's probably a better word for it. it applies right across the board, and I'm so I'm sure, Sean. You know, obviously you're a a black player, so so color racism is at the centre of you, and you must have I'm sure suffered it. But it isn't just about color racism, is it? No, I mean, as
0: players, you you just play. You just want to prove prove how well you are, how good you are. Um, and and get on with it so you know you want to just challenge yourself and and move up the move up the ladder in terms of the levels you're playing and playing at the highest level and so my journey, I have had I have had issues. Um, and I, I take my hat off to Raheem because I think he's absolutely brilliant. And then you know when Could I, you have smiled the way that Raheem did when that happened to him? Well, I'd say to you, in my journey, that's that's all I did when I had those situations happen. Because a player in that position, you can't win. You can't win. The only way you can win is just smile it off. And only now that Raheem is a winner for smiling it off because if you look back at videos with, with black players having their situation over the years, you would see some of them uh, w- would smile it off and, and nothing would be said about it. But it's only now, I think, where, you know, we're evolved to a place where we're having a conversation and, you know, it's, it's a reflection of the wider you know, world, if you like. So it's not gonna be something that will be resolved, but I think it shares a, a huge growth to say that we're having this conversation. I, I think this is a little different from previous times. I think, you know, this is, the fact that you can see uh, on the program it was Gary Neville um, speaking about it and saying sometimes he, he sort of cowardly uh, didn't address the situation when they, perhaps they should, talking about Sky, and perhaps they should have as a program, uh, and this tells me that this is now in a space now where these conversations, again, will they'll, they'll have these conversations. So I, I think it's a watershed moment that can help and move forward. But I, do I think it's going to resolve it? Right, you know, no, it's going to take time. But I think this could be a, a big moment. So uh, I, I'm like, well
1: done to, to Reem. We're trying to be positive and optimistic here. You you grew up in Bermuda. Yep. You're now a Mancunian. Have you noticed in the uh, I and mean, here's a Mancunian, isn't he? You know, uh, in the time that you've been here during your life, have you seen enough improvement to encourage you that this can eventually be part of history? You know,
0: I think it's a lot of um, uh, black players that will be saying well done to Raheem and I think this is a, a watershed moment that can slowly move us forward. You know, I think it can move us forward not by perhaps one or two percent. I think we can, this can you know, have us move by you know, 10 or 15 percent in terms of a jump. So I think this is a good period.
1: Well, let's hope that that positivity is, is accurate and that the world does change. I can't help thinking it probably never will completely be perfect. It, nothing ever is, but at least if we're moving in, in the right direction. So let's move on to a, another subject, which is the Champions League.
0: Before we, uh, we've got Dennis's books here, just so that you all know. <laughs> That's
1: why I came out to display these books. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They're I'm sure Dennis will sign them. And we'll announce the winners of the quiz a little later on and you can find out which team has won a set of Dennis Stewart's signed books. Thank you, Sean. Right, let's ask... <laughs> let's ask about the, uh, the Champions League. Obviously, City now qualify top of their group. We know that they can play one of four teams in the, uh, the, the last 16. The, the Champions League itself is full of so many different issues. The booing of the anthem, uh, the, the dislike, it seems, from a lot of City fans of UEFA for various different reasons. FFP being one, uh, another one being the, the treatment of City fans at CSKA and everything. And there's the argument about whether City fans have really took to the Champions League and, and, and whether they really want to win it and is it about other competitions Dennis you've been a director as well as a player you've played in Europe what does Europe mean to you what should it mean to Manchester City and what should it mean to the City fans
2: well I think if you want to be um, known as one of the the, the top clubs uh, around the world you have to win the major tournaments I mean not not just domestic but uh, European international Um, and the Champions League the way the format's made now and the money that's coming in not only to to our Premier League, but also in PSG with Qatar, Bayern, uh, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. You know, that, that's really setting yourself up against the best in Europe and probably you can say the best in the world because the European League is the best in the world. So if you want to challenge yourself against the best, you have to perform in the European Champions League. It's as simple as that, you know. So uh, why
1: why have city not, city fans not warm I mean, I don't know if I speak for you all. Uh, 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 let's just let's just ask: how, how many people in this room, show of hands, would rather win the Premier League than the Champions League? Right, hands down. How many would rather win the Champions League rather than the Premier League? So you can see that the, for those listening into the podcast, obviously the, the vast majority, I would say, in this room were, were definitely for the Premier League.
2: Yeah, but also you also got to understand that these guys watch a Premier League game every week. You know, your Champions League is, is, is a split. You get maybe, what, eight games, is it? To win. So, in essence, these guys want to follow their team all season, not just in blocks of the season. So I can understand that. You know, when I was a director, we used to wonder why we never got a lot of support in the domestic cup competition we tried. I mean, we were first to try Try a fiver, a kids kid for a fiver, you know, and it never made any difference, you know. So the the, the 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 fans want the the Premier League on a they want their weekly diet of that competition, and they want to follow the league, follow the, the position in the league. Whereas the champion, the Champions League is bits and bits and blocks. So I can understand that, you know, but, uh, we'd all like to win that because if we're going to be um, put alongside the best in my best in the world, which is the European Champions League, we have to be close to winning it. So you, what would you rather have? I'd rather Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> I'd <like that> <laughs> Not saying that I would like to win the Champions League as a as a backup, but I mean, you know, that's putting yourself against the best in the world. And the guys every week they want to see the the, the best because we got the best players in the world in the Premier League anyway, you know. So that's what they want their weekly diet of and I can understand it and p- particularly now with all the television coverage that's available you know and, and the, the cost these guys they've got, to, they've got to work 9 to 5 or whatever the, the job is and you know they, they haven't got unlimited cash you know so they've got to be more selective especially the amount of games that's played on television now the European games might be the one where they, they, they sort of say well, well we'll pay for the Premier League maybe go to a later rounds or FA Cup or the League Cup but the Champions League is a, is a game too far cash wise I'm talking about you know That's never been taken into consideration about the guys who've got to put their hands in their pockets not only week in, week out, but twice a week, three times a week with it, sometimes. Stuart, you're in press conferences.
1: Uh, listening to what Pep's got to say and he tries and we've heard him try to rally the supporters to come and make more noise to stop booing the anthem to be uh, more proactive in terms of trying to get City to where he and the owners want to get them to do you have any sympathy with Pep? Um, you know, his, his message dare I say at the moment isn't really getting across in the way that Pep would want is it? <laughs> Yeah, I do. I do. Uh,
3: you got to think. You know, he, he's a, he's a manager who's who's been at Barcelona and Bayern Munich, two clubs who are all about winning the Champions League. That's his pedigree. That's what he's been brought up on. I mean, obviously, he wants to win everything because that, that's how he is. But the Champions League is the holy grail for Pep. You know, he's he's got a good record in it, but he's not got a record that reflects. His greatness as a coach and as a manager, uh, and I think if he could take City to it, that would sort of put the the cap on it. You know, he, he's he's already taken two clubs that are steeped in in European Cup pedigree. Uh, well, he, he's taken Barcelona, he hasn't taken, he, he, he didn't manage it with Bayern Munich. Um, so to take City there, do it with City, would be a, a huge feather in his cap. Uh, he won't admit it, and he still he still says that the Premier League. Is the priority? That's the one he wants to win more than anything else. Um, but I think secretly, this season, if you gave him a choice, I think he would take the, take the Champions League. I understand City fans' frustration with your wafer. You know, we, we all we all feel that, and some of the things they've done down the years are, are just are just ludicrous. But at the end of the day, it's such a big competition, and it is the next step. You know, this City team have, have won the Premier League. Everyone knows that they're the best in the Premier League. Now they need to prove they're the best in Europe. Football's all about taking it on to the next challenge, and that is the next challenge for City.
1: Well, just before I ask Simon a question, if anybody wants to join in this and ask a question, put your hand in the air, and uh, the two ladies over there will bring a microphone over. Don't ask a question without the microphone because obviously it's a it's a podcast, so we want the listeners to be able to hear your question. But I'll just before you ask a question, I'll just ask Simon this one. You're the me- youngest member of the panel, Simon. You've grown up wh- where some of us um, grew up watching uh, Dennis and and, and players of, of even before that where you was either not even on the horizon or only really occasional so it was never really part, which is what Dennis was sort of getting at really, about not being a regular part of existence but you, in your generation have grown up with the Champions League being what it is this huge competition and as a journalist you're able to be that a little bit more dispassionate in the way that you look, perhaps at City even though you're the City reporter uh, and, and look at what they're doing, what do you make of where City are in the Champions League, fans, the club, the players and what they're trying to achieve and how they're going about it
4: I mean I can sympathise with Guardiola wanting to get a bit more of a reaction because that is what he thinks will help the team I'm a bit uncomfortable with sort of trying to tell fans what they should be doing and what they you know because ultimately they're spending their money and you know they're perfectly entitled to to do whatever they want with their games and and with the money I sort of think that city as a team might have to have success before it becomes more popular with fans and and also these tend to, kind of debates always tend to happen around the group stages and the group stages aren't that exciting because as a competition it's pretty bloated it's, you know, the Premier League as Dennis was saying is week in, week out and there's always action and excitement whereas it's only really the business end of the Champions League which is a few games so I, I kind of, you know, I can get why there isn't that much excitement around it But
1: as I, I'm going to call you very kindly here a youngster, okay. right? Okay because he is relatively speaking isn't he as a youngster do you, do you think oh I'm so excited because it's a, t- trying to, with your, your football hat on really excited about the Champions League or do you get more excited about the Premier League
4: I think it varies game by game like I think the atmosphere in the City-Liverpool quarter last season um, was electric and when City were going for it in first half it was amazing City-Hoffenheim last night I wasn't thinking this is going to be one of the games of the season. It kind of, whereas, you know, the Derby in the Premier League is always one of those games that you you get up for. It just varies game by game. And the further City go in the competition in the Champions League, the more exciting things will be. But, you know, you can, you can understand why there isn't always the excitement because it isn't always exciting.
1: OK, well, that's, that's Simon's answer. Now, we're on first-name terms tonight, so if you just introduce your first
5: name, sir, and then ask your question to who you want to ask it to. OK, my, my name is Edward. Um, it's really a question for all the panel. If we're talking about the Champions League, it's a two-part question. I know that uh, Pep has said that he doesn't intend to go into the transfer market in January but bearing in mind the amount of injuries that we've now got, and unfortunately, at the moment, Gabriel Jesus just isn't able to sit the ball in the back of the net. Do you think that we would perhaps try and buy two players? One, to help Fernandinho, because my own opinion is he's starting to perhaps look a little bit jaded, and second of all, uh, a striker in case Sergio is not back up to it? That's the first part of the question. And the second part... You sound like Garth Crook's here with this question. <laughs> well, the second part, I'll make it quick. When we played Liverpool away, we changed our tactics a little bit. Do you feel that now we're getting to the later stage of the Champions League, away from home, we should perhaps part the bus a little bit, as we did in Liverpool, against the stronger sides?
2: Right, who's going for part one? Well, I'm going for part one. <laughs> <laughs> Gabriel Jesus. Um, I think what he's doing, uh, what uh, Pep is very good at is developing players. I mean, I don't think you would be expected... I, I think Jesus is next, week, next season's player because he's been brought in from, from Brazil, Young 20-year-old, he's now 21, and he, he don't forget he, he had the injury, broke his leg for the was it the first or his ligament for the first two three months. So he's been in, inducted into the into the culture, and he's still learning. He's still learning the game, and I think he's got tremendous ability, especially in and on the penalty box. He's different to, to Sergio, but he's still a box a box player, and I think you'll see the best of him next season, not this season. And I think I'm happy that he has his odd game. I mean, I don't think if Sergio had been fit, he would have played the other night. So he's got a, he's got an opportunity like Phil Foden how to get a few more minutes under his belt and get the, to know what the the, uh, the league's all about the games are all about the opposition's all about the pace of the game's all about what Pep's looking for in a team formation so we just don't be over critical about him at the moment if he's the same next season you can you can tell what you think but but part, give, of the question, that time.
1: part of the question was, uh, I don't think it was necessarily saying get rid of Gabriel Jesus. I'm not paraphrasing here, but I think that's what you, you were saying. But does City need
2: maybe a third striker? Yeah, but if, if you look at if the, what um, Pef had at Barcelona, occasionally he'd play, he'd play the, the, shadow, the shadow number nine. I shared number and play Messi as a center forward, but not up there. In this whole he does it a bit with Rahim. And I think the flexibility, the flexibility that he's offering the players to do that gives him options that he has to to switch players. And now he's brought Maras in there. He can play Rahim up front, Maras one side, Sane down the other side, even Bernardo Silva down the side. Occasionally he's made substitutions and brought Bernardo Silva and he's played up front as a free. The, what they call the, the ghost number nine so he's, he's, he's thinking all the time as, as to what the best to get at. but all, all the time these players who are playing these various different positions are learning about the different positions they're learning how to play over there they're developing their own abilities to see things to, to see things what happen. and I'm quite happy when I see it, see it happening so the short answer
1: then is you wouldn't sign another striker
2: I'll I'd put, I'd put it that way I wouldn't but if one come available, the top quality, don't forget the top quality, and he, he feels he needs a finished article, don't forget, uh, I think, Sergio signed more, de- one year more deal, has
1: he? Yeah, I think so. So
2: yeah. we've got him for this season and, and one more. It might even be two more, I think. And also, if you look, if you look around his team now, and because I'm in business, um, the succession planning he's got in place, which is fabulous. He's got Danny co- Danilo to cover for Carl Walker. He's got Fabian Delft to cover for Mendy, or the two of them a share. He's got four centre-halves. Stones and Laporte to take her from Otamendi Mendy and Vinny. And then you've got Dune. And I agree with you, one thing I do agree with you about, we need someone like to replace Fernandinho. because so I think he's fantastic. Gundogan did it last night, but not quite the same. But w- where can Gundogan become a Fernandinho? I don't know. But if you look at the rest, we've got succession planning all in the team.
1: Let's, let's get Sean on the about Fernandinho, then, because I know, like me, you're a big fan of him, aren't you?
0: Yes. Well, Fernandinho is is we definitely cover for him, and uh, I think your yeah, oh, eyes is is spot on in terms of, the, you know, he's playing week in week out, and Fernandinho believe is 31 um might be
1: older actually
0: 33 sorry so and i can tell you i was fit at 33 but that's when i just started to get little injuries and you do start to tire you start thinking about the running and you think well i've got to do that i've got to do that so what i'm saying is without a doubt i think that is one area i think we need to find a replacement um and you know, do we have someone in the in the, in the academy coming through? Probably not. Um, so I think that will be the the, the number one area to, to well we could put Addison in, in
1: midfield <laughs> You know what, on that subject though Sean, but yes, definitely
0: we need to, to find a, a, a replacement a, on, another player, sorry.
1: On the potential academy subs, uh, alternative Simon watches a lot of the, the, the EDS and youth like I do I mean there's, there's a lad called Gomez who's potentially in Fernandinho's position uh, there's another one gone out on loan I mean is there something in the club you think could eventually replace Fernandinho or that the moves for Jorginho and Fred were were signalled as, as being senior replacements for him, weren't they?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um I, I think the fact that they went in for Jorginho and Fred showed that Pep wanted like a ready-made replacement, and if he could have got Jorginho in summer, you've seen how good he's been for Chelsea. Um I think City I think City have got a good chance of winning the Champions League anyway, because on their day they're as good as any team in Europe I'd think but had they signed Jorginho to have that extra cover for for Fernandinho the squad would just be that that little bit stronger um, but I'm not sure there's anyone coming through at the moment there was, there's been a lot of talk about Claudio Gomez um, I can't say I've seen a lot from him in the the academy games I've watched but it's, it's hard sometimes when players are like Phil Foden looks a lot better when he plays with the the senior team with like world class players around him so so maybe there's hope and pet likes Douglas Louise, but he's not got a work permit so if we're talking January signings I think it would be somebody experienced who could come straight into the team
1: I can't remember what the second part of your question was sir, but Stuart's going to answer it for you <laughs> what, what, what was the question have you still got the get the microphone back to you Go on, what was the second well, well, one the second part was, the all,
5: was all about the tactics away from home particularly against the better side Stuart yeah. that's yours I remember thanks for that yeah <laughs>
3: Well, I, th- I think people misunderstand Pep. I mean, when he when he came in, we all said he's got this way of playing, and he sticks to that way of playing no matter what. Well, he doesn't. He adapts all the time, and he he kept saying repeatedly in that first season when it wasn't so good, he, he was saying. I haven't come here to teach the Premier League anything. I've come here to learn from the Premier League, learn how to. And you can see the way he's adapted. He's adapted to the English style. You know, he, he plays differently. And those those games against Liverpool last season were big learning curves for Pep. I think he realised that you can't just you can't go to Anfield on a European night and just play the way City were playing. They're so good, Liverpool, at doing what they do, pressing you high, hitting you on the break, and, and City were wide open for it. I, I, I remember thinking, and I don't know I talked to a lot. City fans before that quarter-final thinking that City are tailor-made for the way Liverpool play. If they don't get it absolutely spot-on, they're going to come a cropper here. And getting it absolutely spot-on at Anfield in that kind of atmosphere and when you've had what happened to them on the way to the, the game happening as well, so I think when they went there in the league this season, we saw it, we saw it different, you know, Bernardo played deeper, he, he was a little bit more pragmatic, and City should have won the game, you know, if Mahrez hadn't put it over the bar, they come away from three points, and things look very, very different in, in the league. So Pep's, you know, he's adapting all the time, and I, I think that, that's a good sign in terms of the Champions League going forward. The only weakness, as far as I can see, is is what we discussed, you know, Fernandinho, there's no backup for him. If he gets an injury, if he's out for any, which he's got now, we don't think it's a serious one. But if if he's out for any length of time, I think City have got a real problem.
1: Right, we'll take one more question before we take a little break, but hold your questions and we'll do them again after. And you can use that hashtag, which will come round again in a second. And obviously there'll be opportunity to buy Dennis's book um, and, and to have selfies and, uh, and, and to bow down at these two great guys, and Sean and Dennis as well. So... um <laughs> so uh, you can do that in a moment but let's just get one more question what's your name sir? Uh,
5: Bev Bev Morris
1: right off you go Uh,
5: every week we seem to have problems with referees making decisions what's the panel's view on bringing in VAR as soon as possible?
1: who wants that one? Sean's going for it yes
0: VAR is you know we're never going to get every decision right but what it will do if we're getting 90% of the decisions right then it's going to bring us closer we'll get 95% because there's still an element where we can sit on as a panel and I say that's not a penalty and then it says that's a stern wall penalty so we're always going to have those situations but I think VAR certainly will clear up a lot so the, the sooner it comes in the sooner we'll get closer to 100%
1: Is there any dissent from anybody on the panel or are you all in agreement? No. They look like the three wise monkeys up here, don't they? The
3: the only thing I would say is, what a fan's going to moan about and what a journalists going to write about if, if you start getting the decisions right. It's, yeah, but there'll the
1: always be those decisions that are not clear cut. So VAR is supposed to eliminate the clear cut ones really, isn't it? There'll always be the debatable ones so it's never, don't worry Stu, you're going to stay in a job for a little longer. Um, and we'll continue with this chat uh, the other side of a short break when we'll also reveal the winner of Dennis's sign book's Perhaps we, I don't know whether we should do that before or after you start selling them, Dennis. Um, But anyway, we'll do that and we'll also find out who's won the seats in the Tunnel Club. So uh, take a comfort break, charge your glasses, we'll come back and. Right, okay, so we're back and we're all recording everything. You're listening to, of course, uh, Talking City Live, which is the Manchester Evening News podcast. Uh, It is downloadable. It's on SoundCloud. It's on all these different ways that you can get uh, podcasts. So please subscribe. Give us a review, a nice one put five stars on and it's every week it's usually one of these two and me sometimes it's three of us Uh, sometimes it's ash who's quietly sitting in the corner over there usually it's rich who presents it and we always talk about city and whatever the events are and this is a live version taking place at the national football museum at urbis in central manchester in front of a live audience Unrehearsed, right? Okay, so we're going to go to some questions now, which I've uh, I've lost for the moment. Now I've got my questions here. So these were the ones that were tweeted in with the hashtag, the appropriate hashtag. The first one comes from Darren Cook. Uh, would you trade? This is obviously to Sean. Would you trade Gillingham ninety nine for a Premier League trophy?
0: Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Can you come back to me? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. A player wants to, wants to achieve, you know, playing, in the Premier, playing and winning the Premier League. But my, my journey uh, and rapport that I've gained with the fans, I
1: would not replace that. I would not change that at all. And you know what? I mean, I could ask you all: Would you change the journey that City have been on? You know,
2: would you have preferred constant success? No. What I would say, what I would say, with, and endorse what Sean's saying: If we, if he hadn't have done what he did at Gillingham, we wouldn't be anywhere near the Premier League.
1: had the absolute honour, I'm sure you remember this uh, Sean, of of hosting a a dinner for the Variety Club of Great Britain a few years ago, which we called Remembering the Heroes of 1999, Where Would We Be Without Them, which Mark Halsey, the referee came to, Tony Pulis came to, and pretty much the whole of the team that day came to, and I think that team, your team, is loved as much as any team that's ever played in Manchester City history Yes, I mean...
0: Rightly so. I mean, when we showed up, we didn't know if we was going to draw, lose, or lose. <laughs> no, it was a fantastic journey because, you know, I I I recall sort of playing and thinking, we've got 30,000 and we're in League Two. You know, I, I I was amazed by this. Like, the fans are just there every week, every week. and And to just have that journey with the fans was for me it was truly amazing it was absolutely brilliant.
1: absolutely well thank you for your playing your part uh, i grew up watching uh, uh, dennis's team playing and that 76 league cup final was an early highlight for me and your team was full of flair uh, and, and you, Dennis, obviously I'm going to say this because you sat here anyway, but I'd say it even if you weren't, were one of those players that I really admired as a young player, a uh, skillful, passionate player who could do just about everything and actually could play in that front three. When you think back to that, that era, do you remember it with the kind of fondness I
2: do? Yeah, well, I'd question because it was, a, it was a team that won a trophy and... Your career lasts say, 10 years maybe, and what you're looking to do is you win a major, major trophy in your career. It's no good when you finish your career; you got nothing to look back on. I know, came out, earned a few quid, but you know you need a trophy. You need some recognition. Um, you know, you've got. I think in those days it was four opportunities: two domestics, the league and an international, uh, the league and the international. And you needed to have something that you can take for the rest of your career because that is your memory box and you know that one obviously 76 was fantastic for me 73 won the FA Cup with Sun 76 with League Cup with City and when I went to New York we won the North American Soccer League Championship there so every major club I've been with I've, I've won a major trophy so that for me is great look back at but obviously the 76 was a bit special considering my hometown team you know and uh, a team that rejected me as a 15 year old <laughs> You know, I haven't played for Newcastle schoolboys from 12, 13, 14, and 15, and then uh, someone given the opportunity and uh, managed to uh, to get a transfer to the city. And just a fantastic occasion against Newcastle. And you know, there's a story. My, my dad and I got friends and family. I probably knew more in the Newcastle end in that particular game than I did in the city end. I mean, so many people have grown up with me. And when they, uh, they're leaving the game, my dad turns to my brother and said, "Don't tell anybody who I am." <laughs> Which I thought you were going to get mugged. <laughs> but it was just me- memories like that, you know, to spectate. It was a winning goal, it was won the trophy for the, uh, for the supporters, for the club, for your teammates, and it was just something you can put in your memory box.
1: I mean, we all take uh, flying now as a normal part of daily life and James Cooper obviously knows all about that as he gets <laughs> stuck coming back from Paris. But the first flight I ever took was as a 19-year-old to fly to New York City to watch Dennis Stewart play for New York Cosmos. And that was a fantastic f- feeling for me to watch one of my heroes play for New York Cosmos. 60,000, Franz Beckenbauer was in your team um, and, and I'll never forget that, even though it's all become a bit more routine now. Uh, now I should say than it was back then but that, that was great for me certainly as a fan now the next question is uh, from Paul I don't know who Paul is but do you want to put your hand up Paul wherever you are not that it matters on the podcast <laughs> but um, Paul Paul is the good looking one in the middle we'll say that and you'll never know whether he is or not right so, uh, what, so the, the, two, the two journals the two scribes can start on this one uh, what does life after pet look like for City <laughs> oh for those listening, Stuart hands the, the microphone over to Simon.
4: You you would like to think very good. Um I mean first off he's he's staying until twenty twenty one at least. Instead he's open to extending that contract further. But also he's brought in young players that look like they're gonna play The majority of their careers at City Um, and you've got Yusane, Sterling, Jesus, um, De Bruyne still, Edison, all those players that are going to come through and they're going to be there once Pep's gone and they're going to have had Pep's training for five five years or so. So um, you would like to think that a club that has been run so well by the owners um, everything was set up to get Pep but they will continue after Pep's gone I don't think Guardiola would walk away if he felt he was leaving a mess behind kind of thing and you look at Bayern and Barcelona after him they've continued to do well even if they've been missing um,
1: although them. Bayern have struggled a little bit haven't they?
4: yeah 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 yeah. but you know they've, they're still alright aren't they?
2: Yeah, but what they do—they didn't have in place—is what Pep's got in place for us succession, and that's what like you just bought another 23-year-old, uh, the USA national keeper, to to play alongside Edson, so we'll cover that place. So every position now is covered by a high high quality player, you know. In terms
1: of post-Pep, I mean, again, I'll come to Stuart because I'm not going to let him get away with it. Uh, Mikel Arteta seems to be favourite in people's minds at the moment. It it might be that uh, uh, there's another alternative from within the camp or, of course, we know that one of them, Patrick Vieira, has moved on to Nice, um, but he's still thought of as part of the, the... Do you think that it'll be a succession after Pep? I think that's what
3: they're looking to do. I mean, Vieira's been talked about for years and years. You know, he, he was such an impressive figure when he was he, here. He was brought in at the end of his career as a player because of the influence he had on the dressing room more than perhaps, well, more than he did on the pitch. Uh, he was such a big voice in the dressing room and he helped, helped City through, you know, difficult periods in that in that, that season. Um, and from that moment on, they had him earmarked as... Possible future manager, uh, and that's that's why they've they've, they've progressed him the way. As you know, he went to New York City to get experience. Perfectly happy that he's now back in European football, getting more experience. But in the meantime, Mikel Arteta, as you say, has come in. And we sat down with Dominic Torrent out in New York in the summer when City were out there. Uh, we went up to their, their training complex, uh, and he spoke really well about Arteta, how much he reminds him of a young Pep uh, in terms of his football intelligence. Uh, in terms of his drive and his passion, uh, you do get the feeling that, that Guardiola is, is a bit of a one-off. You know, he's, he, in my mind, he's a genius, um, but he's he, he's such a driven individual. You know, we, we, you can see it, you can see it in everything he does. Whether Arteta's got all of that, I don't know, but he's certainly got a lot of it. And I think I think he's another one who who comes into the uh, into that category. But like Simon said, uh, I I worked out that that team last night had an average age of twenty-three. Uh, and you can see that front three of Sterling, Sané, Jesus, terrorising defences for years to come. You can see Kevin De Bruyne maturing into a more of a holding midfield. I think he could play that, especially as he starts getting older and his legs. Then, but he, I mean, he's still a young lad. He's only twenty five or so. But you know, as he gets older, he'll. Uh, I think he could play play that that deeper position. Um, and you got Phil Foden coming through. Uh, it's such it's such a young team. He's lowered the age profile, Pep, and he, You know, he's he's, he's planning to be here for some time and then uh, pass it on to, to an appropriate person perhaps Arteta, perhaps Vieira Perhaps somebody else who comes along.
1: Do you do you think? And I'm just going to throw this in as as a wild card because I'm a big fan of him. He's still playing. Do you think Vincent Company could be a potential manager? Of the, because he's a leader. He's that. Di- you know, you're shaking your head, Dennis. You doubt that one. No, I think
2: he's more he's more in the uh, business side of it. From what I can gather, he's got an MBA business business studies, wasn't it? I think more on the business side, whether he gets involved in the administration, uh, and the running of the running of the uh, some some part of the organisation. I would suggest that seems to sort of best than being on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on
1: the training field. I spoke to his wife about it. I asked her, I had her on my radio programme, and she was saying things like he could end up being the, the president of Belgium or something, you know that, that he could go in that, and you can imagine that, can't you? The
2: sh- shy retiring chap, you mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, we've got a question which the two players, I don't think you two can answer this one but who's your, fi- well, you, maybe you can right, but who's your, both of you who's your, this is coming from um, Liam Day, and the other one is anonymous. So was Liam somewhere in the room? Cheers, Liam. Who's your favourite former teammate?
2: Tell me, me. I didn't play. Well,
0: in the board it was Dennis until he said Sean scored one hundred and three and I scored one hundred and seven, so we've got to get rid of him. <laughs> no, uh, my former teammate was was Jared Weekens. We got on very well. We, um, I guess, we had a very similar way in how we how we sort of uh, spoke with people and. and those of you that know Gerard was Gerard was just a normal, down-to-earth guy and and I I found him just like me, so we got on very well and uh, I I felt he was very intelligent because I say this, because when we used to train, I couldn't score when he marked me so so he was highly intelligent He, he just, he, he and, and we saw that when we even played in the Derby games, when he had Mark Venistero out the game. And for me, it was a surprise, because he just knew where strikers wanted to be. Certainly those, box, those strikers that like to be in and around the box. Uh, so Gerard Vickers was,
2: you know, we got on very well. Have you got one, Dennis? And Dennis. Dennis. <laughs> Mine's Asa. Asa Hartford. I mean, because be, being, being a greedy forward player... I want somebody who's going to give me great passes so I can score great goals <laughs> and Acer was great on, it, on both left foot and right foot you know talk about was a bit on the radio just recently about uh, players who don't are only one footed you're not know, playing Franz Beckenbauer who had the best right foot in the world uh, but Acer, two footed brilliant his vision was great and he could he could stick his foot in you know occasionally we had a if there was a defender who would uh, sort of getting into our forwards he'd say to me you get them first and I'll get him second because the referee's going to let he won't do us both but he'll, he'll get us, let us off you see so I'll, I, I'll do him first and Acer does him second so the defender knows what he's into you see so it was a little combination it was a combo um, Bruce really was a hard little man I mean he really was but his ability passing I mean he probably near the end of his career he, he, he was scoring a few goals as well he'd all looked about eight six to eight goals a season but uh, that wasn't his strength but his passing ability was second to none so I'm
1: thinking for you, for you, Stuart, it's either Peter Gardner, maybe, or Chris Bailey, your favourite team, or, or of course, Simon. But uh, perhaps we shouldn't include somebody currently. Who is your favourite teammate?
3: Well, can I say my favourite teammate from these guys was also Asa Hartford, because my first job in journalism was covering Stockport County for the Stockport Express, and in, after about two weeks, Asa took me out and got me absolutely smashed out of my head. And it was a night before a game. He was player manager. And it was about five o'clock in the morning and we were both slumped across a table and he said, I think I've just done a hamstring. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be fit for tomorrow.
1: <laughs> so there you go. Simon anything you want to contribute to this? No. no. <laughs> Right, let, let's see if there's anybody else in the room. Right, we've got a question here from uh, from the, ta- the winning table, right? Just give us your first name and ask your question.
2: Yeah, my name's Anthony. Uh, it's a lighthearted question to uh, Dennis Stewart. So, Dennis, uh, how's your good friend uh, George Potter?
1: This is, this is the former Hartlepool player, am I right? That's right, yeah. yeah anybody remember Could you want to tell the story
2: Dennis Yeah, you know, when I was uh, before I signed for Sunland I was on uh, um, Sunland I was on a, a recreation administrative management course at Teesside Poly you know you had to get qualifications to look at what you're going to do after the game because there wasn't that much money in the game so there was quite a few guys from the northeast at the, at the course and one of them was George Potter who played for Harlepool got in great no problem but then in the FA Cup third round we happened to come against Harlepool at Main Road and uh, you know what it's like when the game is, you know, when your competition's against you, you don't, you don't have your friends across the other side of the uh, the other team. And it was an instant where sort of the ball ran in and I slid in. And as I was getting up, George reacted and kicked me in the back of, back of the leg. So I got up in red mist and uh, <laughs> my head found his head and <laughs> he went down and depressed fractured the cheekbone. But fortunately... Thanks for the. Re- well, I, I obviously got a red card, but fortunately the referee sent him off on a stretcher. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it was one of those moments, in the, uh, when you, the red mist comes down, I'm afraid the red mist comes down. But uh, George is fine now, by the way. He's in good shape. <laughs> good to hear.
1: And I think we won six 0 didn't we? Something that day.
2: Yeah, the worst thing yeah. was we won six one, and we were three one up. When I got sent off, and I'd scored two. I could have had a hatful. <laughs>
1: we've got a question at the back of the room there if somebody wants to get a microphone oh hang on we've got we'll come to you in a second sir Uh, what's your name and what's your question Uh, my name's Patrick I'm
3: um, actually visiting uh, out here from Sydney Australia with the uh, Sydney Blues now uh, question is for Sean um I asked this question uh, when we had the trophy tour a couple of weeks back to our special guest, Paul Dikov, and asked him what was his um, toughest opponent that he ever had, and he said back at his Arsenal days it was uh, Paolo Modini. I wanted to ask who was your toughest opponent you ever came across uh, during your career, whether it was at City or anybody else.
0: Well, the toughest opponent I had was Martin Keown. Uh, he was, when he was at Arsenal, he was a much more improved player, and he was, you know, after the game... you. you you sort of I'd find myself like all scratched up and I'm thinking why am I got all these scratches on me and Martin Keane was that sort of well, we all know what he was like the ball could be at the other end of the field and he's still grabbing you and holding you and I'm like mate the ball's down there so <laughs> he, he, he always you know he got his foot stuck in and, and certainly his time at Arsenal he improved a hell of a lot in terms of he didn't dwell on the ball whereas probably when he was at Everton you, could, you can win the odd ball off him because I think he thought he was better than what was, but when he's at Arsenal, he became much more improved, so he, he kept it real simple, gave it to the quality players and therefore looked a lot better and was a better player, but he, he was an absolute rash. Now, yepstep was the best defender at the time, but when we played against United, I... When Yep Stemp was there, I actually was just coming on for like 10, 15 minutes, but he was certainly the best defender at the time, but I never got a, a good 45 minutes to play against Yep Stemp, but Martin Kieran was, was the toughest at the time. I've still got scratch marks from him. <laughs> well, you, Dennis? I think, I think he still does the same thing on Match of the
3: Day.
2: <laughs> I think not in any individual, and I've said this many times but I've been asked the same question. But if you guys, maybe some of you, a bit too too young to remember the the, the Liverpool team in the mid 70s. They were a fabulous system, play 4-4-2, 4-4-2, 4-4-2 all the time. Uh, a great system. So when when you used to get the ball wide, I never got a chance to expose the fullback because the wide the wide midfield player would challenge me first. So it was always two under one, and it was the hardest team as such to break down to get at. So I've never really had a problem with any individual, but that as a team unit, uh, team shape was my di- most difficult opponent.
1: Right, we got. Was that was a question at the back there, wasn't it? Just just to warn you, whatever your question is, I'm going to bring in Simon and Stuart on this one. So, what's your question? What's your name, by the way? Uh, uh, hi there. Uh, this is Keith from uh, Marple. I'm asking the question on behalf of my brother, who's li- listening at the moment in Houston, Texas. Right, uh, great. He sent this. Uh, question hi, Martin. I enjoy
2: you. Hi, Martin. A big hand for Martin. Come on, guys. Yay. Yay! Good day. Oh, that's
1: Australian, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah. His question is, uh, what can we do uh, to keep Jose Mourinho at Manchester United for many years to come? Right, Simon. That's yours, Stuart. Don't let him duck this one. Stuart.
3: He's doing his best to get out, isn't he? Let's face it. Uh, Phil Jones is doing a a decent job of getting him out as well. I think he was flying James Cooper's plane back as well today. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. it's it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I remember when when the two managers started, we talked about this this huge showdown between Mourinho and Guardiola. You know, we were going to get. They called it the disease in Spain. The, the relationship between the two of them was so toxic, and it just hasn't happened because Pep's absolutely blown him out of the water, hasn't he? You know. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where Mourinho goes from here. He, he's starting to look like yesterday's manager. I mean, I. I I've always rated him as a manager, but he's uh, he's struggling, isn't he? He's struggling. i just, just coming in. On and you're table. all loving it, aren't you? <laughs>
2: yeah, i have just got a view because if you look at Alex Ferguson, he bought players to fit a shape and system that he wanted to play. He bought players. Pep buys players to fit the system that he wants to play. Mourinho and the Crees just bought players and expected them. Because I don't know what shape and system they're playing. Change it every week. So I don't. I don't know whether that's maybe. As Stewart says, you know, he's had, he's had his time and maybe can't, he can't evolve.
3: I, th- I, think, I think one of the problems at United, I don't want to bang about them too much, but one thing City have got right is that they've had a director of football from the start Brian Marwood was the director of football they gave him a different title because director of football had a bit of a, a a bad stink about it in English football at that time so Brian Marwood was the director of football in all but name uh, and then of course Cheeky came in to pave the way for, for Pep coming so City have had a I've had a plan from going back seven or eight years, nine years. United haven't had that. United have just gone, lurched from... Since Fergie left, they've lurched from manager to manager. And United have always had this thing as, it'll be all right, we're Manchester United. And, uh, you know, there is there is that little bit of arrogance about it. Um, and I think that's where they've fallen down. City have been planning and planning and planning. And you, that. that you can see the way the team has evolved you know you you can see Mancini's players are in there we've even got players from pre-Mancini you know still Vincent company's still there Um, you can see see Mancini's players you can see Pellegrini's players and now we've got Pep's players who have capped it all off that team is, is a product of what City have done over the last nine years United's team is a product of leaping from manager to manager without any kind of planning going on behind are,
1: it. Are you trying to convince me that, that United didn't sign Sanchez and Fred because they actually wanted these players and not, <laughs> not because they were trying to steal a march on two-city targets?
2: I don't believe that for a second. I think there's one, one quote which was made by one of the executives of Manchester United, which amazes me. It said, success on the football pitch will not affect our commercial revenue. And I thought it was an amazing... Quote, you know, because surely they go hand in hand. That's right I unless Brand Manchester United, they think is stronger than, is stronger off the field than on the field. You know, I thought, make a team good.
1: Right, let's move away from that subject, eh? We've had enough of that. Right, we've got another question, but with a microphone, because we don't want to do it without a microphone. So, uh, again, I'll say for the purposes of the podcast, the good-looking lad in the middle of the room at the back there. Have we got... Have we got so, uh, don't, you're both good-looking, right? Whichever one wants to go first. Do you want to go first? Yeah. Specky four-eyes. Right, go on. <laughs> See you outside. All right.
3: <laughs> I am, uh, I'm Neil from Crew um, <laughs> um, football's full of key moments and a um, bit of a fan of nostalgia i like to look at where we are now and think that there's been a lot of key moments that have taken us to, to where we are now uh, might be Gillingham could be um, you know, Mancini's appointment could be Taxin and I'd like to ask each of the panel really what they think
1: was the key moment that has brought us to where we are now. I'm going to start with Simon here because he's been left out for a bit. So don't think you're getting away with it, Simon. But you three can think about this key moment. Um,
4: I, I like to think that the moment they signed Rabinio was massive just because that whole sort of transfer deadline day it was around a time when transfer deadline day was becoming a thing and we had this takeover and then suddenly it was like City are major players and they've got this amazing Brazilian who can do wonderful things and it it, you know it it didn't turn out to be a massive success um, at the club but just in terms of lifting the The profile of the club and saying that City are major news now, they're here to challenge, and you know, the whole thing about well, City will only be sort of there until the shape gets bored or whatever, well that was a, a signal of intent and it's it stayed and there's been a lot more investment but Rubinho was was the one for me.
1: While you pass the microphone I'll chip one of me own in, you don't mind me contributing do you? Right, I'm going to say, and I don't know, Dennis might go sort of along with this, uh, was when Bob Scott bid for the Olympics which initially got Manchester on the map potentially for a new stadium it eventually manifested itself with a Commonwealth stadium and Francis Lee who's chairman at the time who perhaps not everybody at the time you know was for or against doesn't really matter what you thought he was instrumental in making sure that that stadium happened uh, that it became a football stadium afterwards and uh, that uh, in no, its no you're wrong ah
2: right ok no, Dennis tell us, tell us what happened then no there was, that was involved in the, the early days but it was David Bernstein who the well
1: proportion... it, they, they were all part of it weren't they in different no, stages let, let's get the, the pr- pr- proportions right ok you put me right Dennis I don't mind
2: Go on, tell us what happened then. Yeah, we were told that there was a load of work to be done from the time we took over ninety eight to getting into the stadium in two thousand and three. You know, there had been initial talks, but there was absolutely load and load and load of discussions and talks and budget meetings, and and, and because they initially wanted us to have uh, retained the track around the stadium. You know, we sat down We said, no, there's no chance of that. We, we, It's either going to be a dedicated football stadium or you won't move. You know, we kept Main Road available in case we had to go back there if they didn't come up with the right deal. And that's why we've got the, the, tra- the track outside. It's a fantastic um, complex now, but there was a load of work done between 1998 and 2003, believe me, which is the most important work it was the five years. The whole... The, the, planning, the budgeting, the meetings, constant meetings, design, lots of, lots of work. The first start was started, but there's a lot of work after that, and let's just get the proportion right. And I think David Bernstein does not get his support for the work he did in that period. Brilliant.
1: That's fine. Let's acknowledge that. I would still argue that... Even though we all, are certainly older people, loved Main Road, I think that move to the stadium and the chance to, to, to become a, almost reinvent the club, which eventually saw taxing come in and then the shake come in, without the club, without that stadium move, maybe none of that would have happened. So that feels to me like the, the key moments. Have you got other
2: key moments you want to add, uh, Stuart or Sean? I've got two. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're both called injury time. Injury time, Dillingham. Yeah. Injury try and QPR. Yeah. And they're both five minutes injury time. And we, obviously, uh, Sean got a lovely <laughs> pass to Dickie, wasn't it? It was, I called. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's one of, one of Sean's usually controls and the ball ends up five yards away. <laughs> and Dickie got it and scored. But that was critical, five, that five minutes there and then five minutes at the, uh, give us a chance to get the equaliser and also get the winner when, when Sergio well, scored.
1: You could also argue Sean's controlling of the ball at Wigan with his man-boob uh, in, in the, in the, the build-up to that 99-player final uh, was also a significant moment, wasn't it, Sean?
0: Well, I'm not going to sit here and talk about myself, so <laughs> so no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually think, just agreeing a little bit with Dennis here, in terms of the, the Gillingham game, but the Kevin Horlock girl, the very first girl, because that gave us belief. And obviously then seeing the injury time go up, there was a real belief because and then yourselves, that voice that came, come on! Come on! Well, I can tell you, we heard you.
1: And, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we all know what... So, so Kevin Horlock's girl gave us a lot and, and you know, when we sort of reminisce and talk about it, it sort of just gets smoothed out. and doesn't really get mentioned, but that was a huge turning point. And because Dennis had two, I've also got two. And the other one, I would say, is when Andy Morrison came. Oh, good one. And, and Andy Morrison came, he sort of grabbed us as a, as a team. Uh, and Believe me, I, we were screwed at the gaffer, Royal, but I think we were more screwed at Andy. So, <laughs> so Andy wasn't going to let too much go amiss. So, you know, he sort of galvanized us and, and you know, that leadership uh, qualities that he had. And, and so I think that got us momentum and we started getting belief, uh, putting together wins and a run. So that was, the, I, I felt, for me, I felt that was important points that, at times. Uh, Andy Carmen and, and Kevin orlock 's girl. Stu? Yeah.
3: Well I'd just like to say that I think the job that, that Dennis and the rest of that board did was fantastic. You know, they were doing it off the pitch. Sean and the rest of them are doing it on the pitch, and they got City back to where where they belong. And that's that set the basis. <laughs> that that's one thing that's always impressed me about City and about City fans, the fact that People like Sean and Andy Morrison are revered every bit as much as Sergio Aguero and David Silva. You know, there's 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 an understanding of the history. And, you know, we we are where we are because of these guys, as much as we are, you know, all the fantastic football and the Champions League and everything else that goes with it is all down to what guys like this have done in the past. But if I'm picking out a moment, I'm going to pick a more modern moment from from the time I've been covering City. Uh, And it's the time that Yaya Toure stuck the ball in United's net at Wembley in that semi-final. (laughs) I think at that point, it wasn't about City uh, conquering English football or European football. It was about conquering Manchester. And that was the point... When everyone knew that it had changed. And once you'd change that power balance, once you, City had become the top dogs in Manchester, which I think they did at that moment. I know United won the, the title after that, but that was that was like the the last throws of a of a dying dragon, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I think I think once that ball had gone in the net, the power balance shifted. I'm not saying it won't ever shift back because football does that. It, you know, we've seen it throughout the throughout the last 150 years but I think that moment told everybody that City were, were top dogs in Manchester for the foreseeable future and that's what's happened.
1: Some great answers, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to take one more question uh, and then we'll, we'll bring it to a conclusion. So um, the young man with the... So I'm sorry, we're not going to get to you, are we? But we'll go to the young man with the beard there whose name is?
3: I'm Liam. Right. I've already asked one question by Twitter but there was one more that I wanted to ask the I I could sit here and ask nostalgic questions all night to to Sean and uh, to Dennis Um, but actually this is more towards um, the two journos first of all Stuart what you just said about players being revered the same way you know the the, the likes of Sean and Gerard Vekins Kevin Orlock, we love them just as much as we love the superstars that we have now we wouldn't be who we are without them Um, but on a more serious note the financial fair play investigation is this something we should be worried about or do you think this is just smoke very difficult question to answer and the simple answer is we don't know because UEFA have said absolutely nothing about it City are saying absolutely nothing about it for good reason Um, so we're speculating I mean it's not an area which I came into football journalism to know an awful lot about you know you find you find yourself on to know about a lot of things these days that you you perhaps not an expert in so I went to um a football finance expert a guy called Rob Wilson at Sheffield Hallamshire and asked him his opinion um and he sort of backed up a lot of what I'd speculated about we don't know how much UEFA know the football league stuff was being we're being told as a revelation nobody knew this UEFA didn't know this um, we don't know how much of that UEFA knew there's every possibility UEFA knew all of that and they came to an agreement with City because UEFA botched it, really, in, in some ways. They, they botched the introduction of financial fair play. And they always said that financial fair play wasn't to punish clubs, it was to help clubs and get help them to evolve and help them to avoid uh, getting into serious debt. Uh, I don't want to go on about this all night, but... Um, I think they they made mistakes in introducing FFP, and those mistakes mean that they knew that if if they threw City out of Europe at that point, like four years ago, City would have taken a stand, they would have taken them to court, they would have have brought the best lawyers in from around the world, and they would have exposed the, the faults within UEFA's reasoning and within UEFA's introduction of FFP. Uh, and I think that's why UEFA backed off, and why UEFA came to an agreement with City, which City accepted reluctantly. But I think it was a, it was something that they, uh, you know, they weren't going to take a stand unless they were going to get thrown out of Europe. Now that's speculation. I don't know this, but I I, I put that to Rob Wilson from Sheffield Hallamshire Uni, who's a football finance expert, and who was consulted by the guys who did the football league stuff, and he said he thinks that he's correct he, th- he thinks that you know UEFA weren't going to go to court because he weren't sure of the ground uh, we don't know how much of it they knew now UEFA have said that they're looking into it now whether that's just hot air or whether they actually are we don't know we simply don't know and anyone who anyone who says he does I think they're <laughs> I think they're uh, fabricating it shall we say but I, I, it'll all become, it'll become evident in
1: the next 12 months, I would think.
3: The detail Ian, of... Ian, can we get one more question down the front? Because I feel like I've killed the mood. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can, but can I just say, and I'm, I don't work for the Evening News, that's why he's a chief sports writer for City. Because he does that type of research and he gives that type of answer. And uh, I personally, as a Mancunan, am proud to have uh, a strong newspaper who covers City. And despite what some people say about it being the M U E N or whatever, it isn't. And these two guys are the perfect example of why it isn't. And this Talking City podcast, by the way, is also proof, if you needed it, that, that the Manchester Evening news care just as much about City as they do about United. So thanks for that answer, Stuart. Uh, go on, one more question then. Make it a good one. Oh, down at the front. Did you, yeah, did you want? To ask you a question, so we're giving you save the best till last, right? I'm uh, that be a good one. There's no pressure. I'm Stephen from Manchester, right? Uh, I shouldn't really be complaining, but there's just one little thing that
4: upsets me a bit, and it's uh, some of these young players that uh, we seem to we can't seem to keep them, and they end up going going off to other clubs in Europe and doing very, very well. And uh, I mean, I saw uh, Brian uh, Diaz playing against Fulham, it was absolutely outstanding, squad two two great girls was full of running the whole game, and yet looks like we're going to lose him now to Real Madrid. I mean, what is you know, the panel's uh, opinion on that?
1: Nice, uplifting question to finish on. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for that, really appreciate it. Simon perhaps has more expertise. They both do, but in this, because I know you watch the young players a lot more than perhaps Stuart does.
4: Yeah, I think the the focus changed when Pep came in. You not only had to be an excellent young player to make it, you had to be an excellent young Pep player to make it. And we had someone like and Inaccio who scored goals for fun and did well in the first team, but he doesn't work as a striker like Pep wants his strikers to work, so he, um, he didn't make it. And Phil Foden, brilliant talent, he has to wait for his chances and... I mean, Pep talked. Philip ahead of the Leon game. We all thought he'd start. He didn't. Um, Guardiola isn't going to pick these youngsters because any of us want him to want them to play. And he's going to make them be wait and be patient. And that patience isn't enough. <laughs> for some young players it wasn't enough for Jaden Sancho um, it's not likely to be enough for, for Brahim Diaz and it's a shame if you know City lose Brahim and, and Jaden. but um, if Phil comes through and shows his potential and is a real gem in the team then will you mind it at the end of the day?
1: I'm going to finish with the last question now, because I'm going to finish on an up. The only need to be short sure answers these guys, and all four of you can answer this one. City going to win the league this year? Yes. Yes. That's one. That's two yeses? Yes. And Dennis, a thumbs up from Dennis, for those on the podcast. Thanks very much to everybody who's been in the audience tonight, here at the National Football Museum. Uh, thanks very much to all those listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, give it five stars, give it a review. And uh, this Talking City live podcast might not be next, back next week, but there'll be another one that, well, we'll be live when we're doing it, but we'll be live when it's on there. You know what I mean? Thank you and good night. <laughs>